Welcome to Startup Cornell, a podcast exploring the bold entrepreneurial ideas coming from our students, faculty, staff, and alumni. I'm Kathy Hevis, your host, and today we're talking with Colin Day, the founder and former CEO of ISIMS, which you can find at icims.com. It's a company that offers cloud software for recruiting to help organizations attract, hire, and advance employees who will build a diverse and winning workforce. Now, as an advisor to ISOMS, Day is helping to give back to the business community through advising and board memberships. He's also engaged in philanthropy centered on climate justice. So we'll talk about all those things. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. And remember to rate and review the podcast by scrolling to the bottom of this episode. We want to help more young entrepreneurs find the podcast and be inspired to follow their dreams. So welcome, Colin. I'm so glad you could be here today. Glad to join. Yes, pleasure to be with you. Great. I'd like to start. I know you're doing some new things now, but I'd like to start with a little talk about ISOMS and tell us a little bit about how that company started and what it was all about and what prompted you to, to start working there, to start that company. I always say I sort of fell into the opportunity ass backwards. I graduated in 97 from Cornell. I had a degree in psychology. And didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do in life. And I ended up following a girlfriend. She wanted to be around sort of the New York area. So I looked for jobs in that area and ended up working as a recruiter, which was an entirely new experience for me. I had zero background on recruiting. And even more, they made me a technical recruiter and I had no technical or IT background either. But it was 97. The market was super hot and I actually had a lot of fun learning and, and getting trained on how to be a, a technical recruiter. But knew in the back of my mind that this was probably not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And certainly had a bit of an entrepreneurial itch. It was, it was in my family. My, my father had run his own company and I had an uncle who ran a Formula One racing team. And so there were all these examples of entrepreneurs, which I think the more I talk to entrepreneurs, it's having those examples early in life that kind of give you the willingness to go off and try something crazy like that. But the opportunity sort of got presented when the company I was with, which was called Comrise, had built their own piece of technology called Comrise's Information Management System, which was a piece of software really just to manage all the job openings that we were headhunting for and all the resumes that we were going through and just had an idea to say, I think this is it. This might be the opportunity. The software's not fantastic, but you know, good enough. And so we did a spin out from Comrise and very, very thankfully, we were actually funded by Comrise. So we didn't have to do an angel round or a venture capital round. We actually took loans from the parent company. And thank God we did, because I think had, had we gone venture capital route right before the dot-com turned into the dot-bomb, it might have been an entirely different story for our company. So yeah, that was the, the genesis was kind of a spin out funded by a larger company. So there was a lack of this kind of software across the recruiting spectrum, like companies really didn't have, a, a. they each had their own kind of proprietary method they used in terms of this idea obviously would make it easier for everyone to, to manage this process. Ironically, there, there wasn't a lack. And I, I sort of joked, had I been a good entrepreneur, I probably would have done more homework on the industry and maybe realized that there were a number of these out there. But what was happening is the, the whole industry was just switching over from client server 
to it's called SaaS now. We did not call it SaaS when we got started. We called it ASP software. So it was a very crowded marketplace, but with many people being sort of stuck in client server ways and having a lot of difficulty porting over to kind of web-based software. So I know they always say like timing is every, I think funding and timing is typically everything for an entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, the fact that we got the funding from a parent company and then happened to spin out right when SaaS was I mean, truly in its infancy, right when salesforce.com was getting going and, and other companies like that. There were competitors. In fact, it became extremely competitive and not an easy market to operate in in the early days. So what were some of the things, some of the initiatives or new products you developed within that company that you're really proud of and that you think made the company successful? Yeah, sure. So so what we started off with was what everyone would call an applicant tracking system. I mean, it's dead easy. It's a system to manage all of your job openings essentially post and promote them out everywhere, take in all the applicants and then bring them through whatever your determined kind of recruiting workflow will be. And that was our initial product. That is what everyone had. So really when we came out with that, we were at parity with with pretty much the entire marketplace. I think we saw pretty early on that if we were not going to change the definition of recruiting, it was going to be very difficult to stand out. And so we were big believers of sort of blowing it up to a a full-blown, we call it now sort of talent acquisition platform or talent acquisition cloud. And the idea really, and and, uh, I'm I'm not too proud to say that I, I probably stole all of this from Mark Benioff at Salesforce, but as he expanded from a sales cloud to a marketing cloud and a service cloud, et cetera, we said recruiting is sales. I mean, it truly is. So it, it requires the same sort of thought process. You can't just you know, the ATS is what people would joke was post and pray, kind of put your job out there and just twiddle your thumbs and hope people apply. We thought the most progressive organizations needed to act more like a CRM and, and get out there and do marketing automation, use a CRM to sort of gauge interest and get interest. You know, there's a huge amount of work that goes up front. So that was our idea is to kind of blow out the ATS to have front-end marketing automation, CRM capabilities. And then obviously as new new tools became available, video became huge, texting became huge. We started adding in lots of products for communication and then kind of capped it all off on onboarding. So when you actually hire someone, what is that first experience of kind of coming on board, getting trained, meeting all your managers, et cetera. And that's where we kind of cut it off. Yeah, really proud. I think we led the way in some of the definition of how an ATS got blown up to a broader sort of talent acquisition suite or platform. So you're concerned not only with like, just as you said, like posting the job and praying people, but somehow like being in touch with the potential employees along the way through various means and then following them the whole way through until they're actually starting at the company and then taking it over. Which 100%. Is, yeah, which is really interesting. Yeah, definitely a theory that the most progressive companies believe that some of the best potential employees out there are are passives. They're just not in the market. They're not looking. So how are you getting out, getting your brand in front of these people, sending out newsletters, sending out job matches to them? And, and really, we used to joke, you're kind of hoping for the day they have that one bad day, maybe with their manager and say, you know, I, maybe I should look at something else. And you are front of mind. So passive candidate was sort of the nirvana. And these people haven't given you any indication that they're actually looking for a job. So how do you find, how did you find people who like might be these passive candidates? It's just through like general marketing. 
all sorts of techniques. I mean, general marketing, we ourselves, we had to become very good at demand generation and lead generation in order to build up our own business. And so what we wanted to do was bring some of the best of what we learned about how, how to run a company into recruiting, which is how are they doing with email marketing? How are they using a CRM? Are they scraping the internet? What sources are they finding for talent? Are they doing matches against talent? So all sorts of interesting tools out there. And I think we were just sort of an open book. Like we'll, we'll, we'll take the best of what any industry is doing and try to bring it to recruiting. So I know you said that early in your career, you were doing tech recruiting, but ISOMS didn't really focus on a specific sector. It was kind of a general for anybody, any kind of job. So initially, yeah, we started off looking at staffing firms because that was a company that we had spun out of and we thought it would be a natural first market for us. But in fact, we thought the corporate market was actually a much, much better play for us. So we, we gravitated away from staffing and just went after corporations. And even within that world, we had to very narrowly define ourselves because again, as we'd mentioned, there started to be dozens and dozens of competitors in these marketplaces. And so what we saw, and I think I just finished reading a book, Blue Ocean Strategy, which was that you know most of our competitors were going after the high end, the enterprise side of the market. And we thought, gosh, we're just going to be another run company if we, if we go out the same. Let's make our Blue Ocean SMB small, medium-sized businesses. And we thought it was perfect because SaaS was really, for the first time, this kind of -of out-of-the-box, non-customized software. And the enterprise market were treating their vendors as customized software solutions. And we thought, let's nail it in SMB where SaaS will get readily adopted. And then once we get good at it, we'll be able to bring that model up to the enterprise market where all of our competing vendors have been doing all the no-nos and customizing. So... We had to kind of find those niches in each market and and work our way up. Right. So how did the job market change during the time that you started the company to the time you decided to leave and do some other things? It seems like today's market is so crazy. Like there's just every companies are dying to hire people and they're doing all kinds of things to find them. How was it during the time that you were at ISOMS? And I know you mentioned diversity in a lot of your stuff on the web. And I wondered if that was like a push that also that you really wanted to focus on or the companies wanted you to focus on? Absolutely. I I mean, the first thing was we had about, I think, four rounds of private equity investors. And their first question always to us was, what happens in a down market to a recruiting software provider? And very thankfully, we had run organically without any investors for probably about 12 years before before we met our first PE investor. And we'd been through the dot-com bust. We'd also been through the Great Recession. And so we were able to say, listen, you know, I'm not going to tell you these things aren't painful. I mean, they're just generally painful for everyone. But believe it or not, we, we tend to do well on both sides of the market. And so if you follow me, when it's a, a, a very tight labor market and people are sort of fighting for talent, what they do is they lean on all of those front-end products that we were talking about. Like, I've got to get my brand out there. I've got to get marketing automation and CRM and all of these things because it's a, it's a war. It's a war for talent and I got to get out. So you lean on that side of the equation. And then the sort of flip side is when all of a sudden maybe unemployment skyrockets, these companies begin to get inundated with resumes and applications. And so what we would sort of concentrate is all the screening capabilities Like, how do you take thousands of applicants where maybe you just cannot review them with a human? 
and you know we've got to put in screening mechanisms and background checking mechanisms and all these other various things to automate that review process so we found it you know it had a nice value proposition on either side of the coin don't get me wrong i never want to go through mm-hmm. another right recession yeah but, uh, but 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 we did and then yeah dei dei absolutely became a very very large emphasis for our customers for us as well and our industry is very highly regulated with eeoc and ofccp etc so i think we were always pretty good about making sure like hey are we creating a fair environment for recruiting but with dei our our mindset was we need to make sure that we can help our clients sort of throw out the the largest and most diverse net out there for applicants there's many tools that are trying to anonymize applicants etc to try to create that sort of blind recruiting environment inside it had issues it had issues that we took a look at as really is that you know succeeding or is that creating other issues that we might not even know about our viewpoint was i'm not sure how much you know we're going to change the internal operations of a company but what we can make sure is that they're going out and and trying to get the most diverse applicant pool that they possibly can so that was the real initiative for our company and kind of working with partners who who could help us do that and i'm assuming some of the additional services you offered for the companies to be in touch frequently with their applicants and then to like work with onboarding that companies and employees, potential employees would get a better feel for like what the company culture is throughout that process, perhaps, and avoid, you know, it might help avoid some real mismatches in terms of, you know, not being a good place for those two to be together. So I don't know. No, it was huge. I mean, culture trumps. I mean, we were always super proud of our culture. I think everyone believes that the nirvana of recruiting is that about half of your hires should come from employee referrals. If you're doing something right, that's that's kind of what you shoot for. Um, and and often that's you know that's culture. So I mean, culture was absolutely important for us. And later in the game, when we uh, we started to get quite acquisitive after some of the private equity investments in the company, those were areas that we really started to focus on because there had been some terrific software companies that had come out trying to position culture a, a lot using video technology where you can go in, maybe you can see the manager of the job you're applying for talking to you about the job and what they're looking for. Because I, I do believe in that people don't leave companies, they leave managers. And to be able to see a manager talking about the job can give you an immediate sense of, wow, this is someone I'd really love to work with or not. So a- absolutely it became a huge focus and I think remains a very large focus for ISMs. I want to talk a little bit about you decided to step away from the role that you had there in 2020. And I think that's just fascinating for entrepreneurs to know, like, when do you make that decision? How do you make that decision? And so tell us a little bit about how you made that decision and then like what you thought you'd do right after and then what how that has turned out since you left. I mean, certainly probably a book in there. <laughs> right. On, on that. I mean, the short answer is truly I started to burn out. I don't think enough CEOs talk about that. I did it for 20 years. <laughs> I don't think a lot of, uh, particularly founders, they, they tend not to make it that long. I think they either, they either self-select out when they say this doesn't feel entrepreneurial anymore, or they get booted out because they can't get rid of the entrepreneur's mindset and sort of become more of an executive. It was a long slog for me. 
to, to kind of start as an entrepreneur, then figure out how to pivot, become an executive and, and ultimately sort of scale a company to north of a thousand employees and what that meant. And I think the entrepreneur part of you never lets go of the pain of losing a customer or the pain of losing an employee. And the problem is, is when you have 6,000 customers and over a thousand employees, that, that happens pretty much every day. <laughs> I think I knew and, and, you know, my wife would probably argue, I probably would have been happier if maybe I'd done it five years before, but I knew towards the end I'm burning out. And if I'm burning out, I'm not going to enjoy it as much. I'm not going to be as useful to the company as I think I could be. So I tried to orchestrate it as well as possible in terms of letting the original private equity partners know that I was thinking about stepping down. And then we decided to do a majority private equity deal. And I made it clear to that incoming PE firm that I would be looking to step down. And so let's start a process of looking for a new CEO. I'm proud of, of how I did it. And it was absolutely the right call. Yeah. And on the other side, I'm a work in progress, I would call it as I, as I try to figure out the second chapter of this life. But it was a, a little difficult because uh, believe it or not, I decided to step down March 1st, 2020. So two weeks later, the world shut down. My initial view was I'm going to see all the friends that I missed during those 20 years, and I'm going to travel the world. And none of that became possible. So there was a, uh, a little moment of panic at the beginning as I tried to, to figure out what it was going to be. But I knew it was giving back and I try, I, I wanted to figure out what that meant because it's such a vague thing is like, how do you give back? I've done so well and beyond my dreams of, of what that company could have done. And the first thing that came to me is I, I just want to give back to the business community. I know how important board members were to me and connections were to me and advisors were to me. And so I made it a pretty strong mission of mine to say, I'm going to align myself with a private equity firm, find a couple of venture capital firms, and even get reacquainted with Cornell and the entrepreneurship program, as well as a local university that I've been working with him here in New Jersey, and just say, I'm going to use these as kind of venues to meet entrepreneurs at various phases of the life cycle. And I think the advantage I'd had is that whether it was someone who just wanted to start, I remember that, or maybe they were in the VC round or might even be the kind of 20 million looking to go to 100 million. They were all experiences I had, and I, I felt I had a lot to share. We made a ton of mistakes, and I certainly wanted to talk about those. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm very happily kind of sitting on a number of software boards. I'm, I'm advising some CEOs or just be mentoring CEOs, and it brings me tremendous joy. It really does. It's a lonely job. We all feel like what we're doing is so unique and it's been amazing to see the pattern recognition that no matter what the industry, you know, we all seem to go through the same sort of issues and choke points. So been a lot of fun to see it. And then I, you know, probably even more fun to then hang up my Zoom and not have to deal. Right. Not have to solve the problem. <laughs> Just yeah. give the advice. Right. And, uh, yeah. That's to great. Grandparents, to the grandchildren. But, right. Uh, Right. You get to give them back at night. Yeah. That's great. And so have the companies mostly been software, like similar companies to yours? Tend to be in software. I'm a big believer of that was my area of expertise and I want to stay relevant in that category. So it's it's been dual purpose. I mean, I get a huge amount out of it just by 
continuing to hear from entrepreneurs, like what are the new technologies? What are the new trends that are coming out? I, I mean, learning honestly about artificial intelligence, we knew about it and we were working on it, but it certainly changed. So remaining relevant has been a huge part of it. So let's talk for a minute about your time at Cornell. You majored in psychology, as you said. I wondered, were you involved in any kind of business or entrepreneurial things when you were here? Or did the thought of that ever enter your mind when you were a student? Or were you focused on other things? No, I, I, I can't say I did. I started at Cornell in Japanese studies. I, I got a, an academic scholarship. I, I studied Japanese in high school. And I went to Japan. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'll do this. And I did it for a year and a half. And it was fascinating. But I think ultimately, I learned I'm not sure this is my lifelong passion. And so I did a hard pivot to like, right, what am I going to switch into? I wanted to go to business at the time, you know, the, the business school was in the school of ag, I was in arts and sciences, I didn't know about like, do you switch? Can I switch? And so I, I did a, a sort of pivot on that. And I said, well, what if I did psychology and really focused in on social psychology, organizational psychology? Would that be a way to sort of learn about business in a, you know, coming from a different angle? So with the fact that I, I switched late in the game in the majors, I, I, I had to spend most of my time kind of catching up on earning the credits that I needed. So I didn't have a lot of, a lot of free time. But every summer I was working a job and I, I say most of them were teaching me about what I did not want to do for the rest of my life. I think I'm a story of sometimes you don't have to chart it all out. Like I didn't know where I was starting. I switched into a degree that I didn't know where it was going to end. I followed a girlfriend to an area I didn't think I was going to live in, started at a job I didn't know much about. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are so methodically kind of planning out their lives and what are the increments to get there. I think I'm probably the opposite. Right. Well, and I think that sometimes there are people who are especially among students, that they feel like they should be methodically planning out their life, like it should go here to here to here. And I think there's a lot of alums who come back and say, you know, it probably isn't going to work that way. And that's okay. Like it might turn out to be a better way, the way that your life pattern ends up. So I think it's kind of reassuring to students who don't feel like they have this plan or the ones that have a plan but didn't exactly turn out exactly as they thought. So are there things about your psychology degree that you find yourself using at all in business? Are there some reasons why you think that was helpful? I always joke that when I told people I was using it, it was just to try to sound smarter than I probably was. <laughs> but uh, I'm absolutely sure there are. I, I mean, I really gravitated in the early days towards the branding and the marketing and the pricing. We didn't have salespeople, so I would be heading out and doing all the selling as well. And I do believe there was a ton of psychology in there, which is how do we keep things as simple as possible so you're not creating sort of cognition overload or so yes, probably to make my parents very happy, I will say I <laughs> absolutely your money it, spent in your psychology well degree was not wasted. Well. Right, right. That's very interesting. So were there other things you did at Cornell that are particularly memorable or were you involved in a lot of other like at a fraternity or other things? What about that experience was special to you? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I went to a tiny high school called St. Albans in Washington, D.C., and the freedom of Cornell was absolutely amazing to me. I mean, just the size of it and the freedom to kind of choose your own destinations and walk around all of the campuses. So I, I, I truly enjoyed that. I did end up joining a fraternity. I joined Delta Chi. So I had the fraternity experience at Cornell. 
And then did a semester abroad in London, which I really, really enjoyed. Yeah, I, I feel like I, I got a pretty well-rounded experience at Cornell, but I, I, I certainly, I look back on it incredibly fondly. I would love to know, like, why you think that you ended up as an entrepreneur instead of perhaps working for a company yourself? Are there certain character traits you have or certain abilities or certain ideas about life that you have that you think led you in that path? I think there was always a, I don't know where it came from, but a desire to work for myself. <laughs> I don't know what it, where, you know, how, how it forms so early, but I knew pretty much in my first job that I'd be like, ah, oh, it'd be so much fun just to work for myself. I am definitely, I say it all the time, I feel like I'm a creator at heart. I'm my happiest when I'm creating and it doesn't have to be a company. I love renovating homes. I love, you know, any of these projects that kind of tap into the creative side of me, I, I think are absolutely fantastic. But I don't know, I've read so many books about entrepreneurs. I'm, believe it or not, I don't consider myself the world's like most outgoing individual. I also don't consider myself to be very risky. And, and there are plenty of books out there that actually say that a lot of founders and entrepreneurs actually tend to be very risk averse. I think that's how I have felt. I had a tough experience early on, which was I, I told you we got that loan to fund the company. And, and when the dot-com switched to the dot-bomb, we lost that loan and, and we were nowhere near profitability. And I had to, originally we thought we were going to shut the company down because it was just like over. But we ended up, we were 30 people and we sort of calculated on a napkin, like how much revenue do we have if we want to try to survive? And we figured out we could probably keep eight people. So one day we had to fire 22 out of 30 people. And that forced us to kind of go profitable and, and we never looked back and we've been profitable ever since in an industry that honestly has not had a lot of respect for profitability. In fact, many of the early private equity people I met with told me, you don't know what you're doing. People don't run SaaS companies profitably. It means you don't believe in your own growth or your own business model. And I said, hang on a minute. I've been through some pretty nasty downturns and recessions. And I think that was a risk aversion <laughs> rather than a risk taking. And it's, and it's one that stayed with me. And I think it paid off. And ultimately, I mean, even now, finally, people are respecting that I don't think a software company should just grow and never be profitable. They, they actually should make money, which I can't believe that that sounds like a a new idea or right. a groundbreaking <laughs> idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I've seen all types, but I'm, I'm never shocked to sometimes see an entrepreneur who's very low key and very risk averse, but just goes and does it. And I think the one quality that we all share is we never give up. I, whenever I talk to any entrepreneur, there's always a moment probably where they should have died, not died, right? The company, the company, yeah. Died or should have quit, or just given up, anyone else would have. And there's something in there that says, I'm not going, I can't, I just can't. I think that's the universal trait. That's the quality, right, right. And they may actually not give up, but they may completely tweak the idea and pivot to something else, but they still go Absolutely. move forward. So it's, yeah, I think you're right. The, all the people I've talked to, I would say that's definitely true. And you must have some like you had some family support in terms of your dad being an entrepreneur and you're, I, I want to know more about the Formula One team because that seems really cool. But I mean, those, those family connections must have been 
Like you weren't having parents who were saying, what are you doing, Colin? We need you to go into finance. And, you know, so you must no. have had good support there. Well, I think they wondered why I went. It was like a four-person staffing firm in, in Hazlitt, New Jersey. And I was sort of, really? That's, that's where you're going after Cornell? I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm going to give this a go. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But no, they were incredibly supportive of the career. And believe it or not, in a sort of twist of fate, our first board member, not selected by me, was my father. He was actually selected by the CEO of Comrise, who, who had funded us. They had met and really gotten to know each other. So I actually had my father on our board for, I'd say, probably like the first dozen years of, a, of our run, which was all sorts of interest. I was going to say that can be good and bad, maybe. And was his company anything to do with human resources or recruiting or something completely no. different? No, he started in textiles and worked at DuPont, and then he got into satellite communications, and oh, he had a career, and then did mergers and acquisitions consulting. So, but just a good business person and, and a wonderful person to kind of keep me sane when things got tough. So talk a bit about things you found over your time being an entrepreneur and now in terms of habits, tools you use, like some things that you feel like have been really helpful to you in your daily schedule, what kinds of things are you glad that you used or what kinds of advice would you pass along in that area? I'll probably tell you the other thing that a lot of entrepreneurs have, which is a slight OCD component to their character. But I am a massive kind of, I mentioned creator, but it starts with like, how do you break a creation down into its component parts and list it all out and prioritize it? And so I'm a spreadsheet guy. I'm, I use tasks on my phone. I, I mean, and anything that I can do for listing and task management, et cetera, is, is really kind of what I've lived my life by. I think that OCD nature is it's wonderful in many ways for starting a company and running a company. Uh, probably, probably a little more difficult than regular life and so that's always been the big thing for me. It sounds boring, but honestly, I, I, I live in Excel spreadsheets and like task management on my phone. Right, right. No, that's really good. That's good to know. I mean, I think that some people adopt all kinds of new software all the time or new tools to make their life easier. And sometimes some of the standard ones like a spreadsheet is, are pretty effective. So is there anything you would like to share? I always ask people if there's one thing about you that people would be surprised to find out. I mean, the thing that I, I've been trying to talk openly about, I mentioned the burnout is something that I, I really believe people should talk about. I also am pretty open that I had a, a relatively crippling fear of public speaking when I was young, like like genuinely did. I, mean, I would sort of try to skip classes that had oral components. And I had to face that fear at some point. And starting a company is is uh, is sort of a necessity, especially once we started getting into a thousand employees and I've got to get out there and give speeches. So I'm a big believer of, you know, don't, don't let these things hold you back. Like I, I, I'm, I'm a true believer that I, I think I became a better order and a more more sympathetic and genuine order because of the fear that I had and working to get over that fear. So I try to be pretty open about that. That's great. Right. I think that is inspiring to people to know that something like that doesn't have to keep you back from whatever you want to do, including starting your own company, which you're right. I mean, you've got to be out there selling yourself and your company all the time. You mentioned Blue Ocean Strategies, a book you just read recently. Is that one that you'd recommend to people? I always ask people for book recommendations. Are there any others that you really like? 
I mean, some of mine are truly old school, but I, the one that I drop all the time, because I, I really, it was the eureka moment where I sat down and be like, this is what iSims is going to be, <laughs> was Good to Great by Jim Collins. I just, something about that book opened my eyes. And I thought for the first time, it's like, now I understand who we are and how we're going to position ourselves in this market to win. So I, I probably can't not drop that book. Right, right. <laughs> if you've told it to so many other people, that's for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Is there a business person out there that you admire, someone that you have followed their career and, and felt like they did the right things? There's been a couple, certainly. I mean, I'd have to give the nod, as I did earlier, to Mark Benioff. I think SaaS is SaaS because of genuinely what he did and, and what he created. And the fact that they're at that scale they are and still growing how they are is mind-bending. It's pretty incredible. And I won't say we copied a lot of what we did, but we were inspired by a lot of what he did. And, and so I always enjoyed reading his books and learning about his thoughts on blending, you know, doing well and doing right in business. And then the other one that I do drop all the time, just because I'm, I'm massively impressed by Satya Nadella and what he's done at Microsoft. And like, that was not an easy job <laughs> to, to, to bring that company, but not only back to relevance, but to the domination that they're at. So I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of kind of what, what he's done there. So are there any questions we didn't talk about or any pieces of your career or what you're doing now that we didn't talk about that you want to make sure we do? No, the only thing I would say is it's been an interesting transition. And for anyone else out there, there is a life after <laughs> running a company or your own company for a couple of decades. I've enjoyed it. It's, it, you know, it starts with a long, lonely walk, which is what everyone tells you. And you kind of need to figure out what it is that's important. You know, and it's usually, hopefully, family and friends and health. But the giving back component's been tremendous. And as I mentioned, not just in business, but we're, we're really trying to think about philanthropy now and, you know, obviously everything going on. I am genuinely enjoying it. And I certainly like to be a spokesperson for anyone out there who's sort of thinking, I'd like to step down, but is this my entire life and will I lose my soul? I'm here to say, I think there's good things afterwards. Right, right. That's great. Because I do think there's some entrepreneurs who feel like, okay, I started one company, now I just have to start another one. Or I have to start like six more. Like, you know, and they can't just like, okay, it would be okay if you don't start another company, but you just do something different or help other people who want to start their own companies um, instead of putting yourself like right back into the same kind of. I was 20 years tired. I knew one thing, which was, I don't think I'm going to start another right, company. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Colin. It's been great to have you. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Kathy. Thanks for having me. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. And a special thanks go to Abigail Younger, my editor extraordinaire, and to Bert Odom-Reed of the Cornell Broadcast Studio.